This is the Cognitive History Podcast, where we explain historical events in order to understand their importance. The less heard of, the better. Without further ado, let's get into exploring the obscure. As always, I am your host, Kevin, and with me is my co-host, Logan. How's it going, everybody? Uh, so, Logan, how have you been in the... what? It's been two weeks since I posted our last two episodes, but it's been like three weeks since we actually last recorded. Yeah, yeah. Time is flying by, but I've been pretty good. It's good to hear. Living my best life, working... Going to mass, being a good Catholic. That's a lie. Um, <laughs> the guilt a, starts early. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons you go to mass, though, right? Yeah. 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 To you gotta make up for all the terrible bits of humanity you retain. Yeah, you, you get to apologize for being a bad Catholic, so you're going to try harder, and this is going to get me out of a lot of popularity with Catholicism. I can tell you that right now. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, they have a better sense of humor than you'd think. Yeah, I mean, I would assume most religions do. It's just, I, so I always have... Next to evangelicals do not. Uh, yeah, without alienating anyone, we can leave it at that. Yeah, I'm not naming specific groups, but we all know who I'm talking about. Well, I mean, okay, to be fair, I don't care about naming a few groups in particular, like Westboro Baptist Church. They have no <laughs> sense of humor. I don't care about alienating them. If you follow them, please unfollow <laughs> the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they go way too far in some lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, I, I think that's um, one of the things about Catholicism is it's a lot more organized. Although there is one instance of a uh, thing where the Catholic Church went a bit too far, and we'll, we can get into that at a different time. At any rate, how have I been? Uh, that's the important question here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, that was a segue. That was um, brilliant. So... Uh, uh last no it was right before i posted our last two episodes uh, literally an hour before my wife and i left uh so we went to uh why can i shizuoka prefecture which is um mm. to the west of kanagawa which is where i live so it's southwest of tokyo for those who are looking at a map right now. Um, okay, so yeah. Um, went to Shizuoka Prefecture. Um, a few historic spots. I had, We had a hotel room with a private onsen, which was 
awesome. It's the only way I can actually go to an onsen because most of them still don't allow tattoos. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually went to the site where uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu is enshrined. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's... Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Tokugawa Ieyasu, but, you know, it was it was cool. He's a historical figure with great importance. You don't have to be a fan of him. I mean, you're right. It's I just I, I want to get that out. I'm not a big fan of Ieyasu. <laughs> was it was it the uh, Shimabara stuff that ruined him for you or? <laughs> no, it was the fact that he told Toyotomi Hideyoshi that he was going to support Hideyoshi's son as the shogun but then mm-hmm. just said screw it I'm going to be shogun the backstabbing yeah the after death backstabbing <laughs> so uh, after after that wife and I uh, went back to our regular work schedule for about a week and then Today, actually, we just got back from yesterday and today. We were in Chiba Prefecture, which comes into play a bit today, actually. Mm. But, yeah. Look at you using vacations to do research like a real dedicated boss. Uh, it was uh, it was <laughs> unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, with with that slight segue... Um, we can start to get into the topic. So everybody can tell from the title already. Let's not pretend that people don't read our titles. Uh, Logan, what do you know about Unit 731 without giving too much away? Because I know that we talked about this extensively when we were in high school. Yes, we did. Of which I remember very little because my early 20s were fraught with uh, memory-destroying substances. And and we'll leave that at that. <laughs> uh, it, um, yeah. It's got a cool name. Yeah. So also, just so the audience is aware, it is Unit 731, not Unit 731. Or seven hundred thirty-one. It's seven three one. Because if you were saying it in Japanese, um, I can't. I don't know what unit would translate into. But for numbers, you would have to say nanehyaku sanju ichi, which is a mouthful. So nana san ichi is a lot easier to say. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. So, okay, rough, rough overview. Unit 731 was a covert chemical and biological weapons testing facility operated by the Imperial Japanese Army in Manchuria. What is what is now the Manchuria region, what was called by Japan at the time, Manchukuo. Mm. So 
they did a lot of horrible human experimentation. And it, it was all in the name of trying to find the best biological weapon they possibly could. They they wanted to do some experiments with chemical weapons, but chemical weapons weren't really that much in play in World War II. Those are very much a World War One thing. Right. Uh, there's also... Mustard gas traumatized a lot of people. Yes. Um, and we're actually going to uh, hit on that a little bit too today. Calling it forward. So we're not really going to get into the operations of Unit 731 itself today. Instead, we're going to get into the background because Unit 731, when I first heard of it, was when I was in high school. So, you know, God, like 10, it, it hurts to say this, like 11 years ago. 12. 11, 12, yeah. Um, We're getting old. I know, we are getting old. The big 30 is just over a month away for me. I'm not too far behind you. I know. It's um, looming like a dark creature behind us. <laughs> it's a good way of putting it. But I can feel the knee pain coming on. <laughs> yeah. I already have it. That's what being in the Navy does for you. But um, at any rate... <laughs> focusing military trauma aside yeah let's talk about military trauma um <laughs> so how to put this um okay so when when i first um heard of unit 731 and was doing research on it initially it wasn't that much of a topic that people brought up. Hmm. But nowadays it's become a little more talked about where not really the average person, but someone who has a little more knowledge of uh, World War II, specifically the Japanese portion of World War II, they've hmm. heard of 731, at least usually. Um, it's tangentially related to a bunch of other war crimes that were committed in mainland China by the Imperial Japanese Army. So, yeah, but it, the the background information of 731 is usually not talked about all that much. So that's what I wanted to get into today. I also didn't want to start talking about the actual operations of the unit, finish that, and then do another episode where we talk about the aftermath of that, because the aftermath of it is honestly relatively short. Mm-hmm. So like, if, I, if I'm covering the background only, then I can do a full episode on that. And we can have the part two. Surprise, there's going to be a part two. Uh, speaking about the actual operations of the unit. As well as 
the aftermath and why no one else has heard of this. So, getting into things. Uh, Logan, do you know about the Kwantung army? No. Long pause for a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was dramatic. Dramatic no. Insert Wu-Tang joke here. Jesus. Okay, so the Kwantung army was... Oh, so first, let's get into what Kwantung is. So Kwantung, or officially the Kwantung Least Territory, was a territory gained from the Qing Dynasty in the Treaty of Shimonoseki following the First Sino-Japanese War. Spoiler alert, there's a second one. <laughs> Which we have discussed, not at much length. but Not at length, but we have touched on it, yes. So, yeah, the area was intended to be leased to the government of Japan or the Imperial Japanese in perpetuity mm. as as aligned by the treaty. But it was quickly lost to Russia by uh, via tripartite intervention. But then they got it back after the Russo-Japanese War in the Treaty of Portsmouth hmm. that ended that war. And so from 1905 going forward, a security force was assigned to the Kwantung Lease Territory just in case Russia decided they were going to try and attack and get the territory back again. Because this is at the height of when Russia is still wanting a port that isn't going to freeze over in the summer. They're trying to strengthen their Navy, especially since they just lost a huge naval conflict with Japan. This is all sounding strangely familiar. Yeah, I touched on this a lot in the Japanese militarism episode. This I'm is just going current events. Oh, that too. Yeah. Um, Trust me, I had a long think about how uh, the interactions between Japan and Russia went. And, like, I think they were starting to improve, and then Russia decided to invade Ukraine again. Mm -hmm. And now uh, Japanese-Russo relations are souring again. But, so what you're saying is there's about to be a third Sino-Russian. Oh, G Jesus, no, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers um, crossed. Candles in the church lit, but <laughs> the world's going to do what the world's going to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, fingers crossed nothing like that happens. So the small security force that was assigned to the Kwantung least territory eventually it it would grow and expand as japan further developed the kwantung lease territory and the small security force ends up becoming a full-on army group mm. called the kwantung army and the kwantung army would 
in the future, calling it forward again, serve as the base to launch the second Sino-Japanese war. Hmm. And not much calling it forward, but um, in 1931, following the Mukden incident, which was a false flag operation from the Kwantung army. Um, it's kind of like, uh, God, what was it that launched the Korean war? Oh, I can't remember off the questions. I I can't remember off the top of my head, but we we know what I'm talking about though. It's basically Mm. the Sino Japanese war version of that where it's like, yeah, no, we know this wasn't, this didn't happen or if it did, it was just all from us. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so they used that Mukden incident as uh, a trigger to launch an offensive and uh, the Kwantung army claimed the surrounding area, which was the Manchuria region. And that would eventually go on to become the puppet state of Manchukuo. So like on paper, Manchukuo was its own thing. But in the shadows, it was run by the Japanese government. Hmm. Um, another interesting point is the Kwantung army also housed staunch nationalists. Let's make a drinking game, the cognitive history drinking game. Drink every time Kevin mentions nationalism. (laughs) Oh, I'm already plastered. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... These nationalists, I can't remember the name of the faction, but uh, they they sought to overthrow the civilian government and create a, quote, Showa restoration. Mm. Uh, and that would restore the full government control to the emperor. Uh, that faction's ideations culminated in the february 26th incident in 1936 the mukden incident and the february 26th incident are something i would like to get into at a different time Mm. but because they're they're just tangentially related to this um but so after that incident failed uh that faction dissolved but the Kwantung army still was around and still mainly staffed by these staunch nationalists. Um, And in spite of housing that faction, the Kwantung army was considered the most prestigious army group. And many of its personnel went on to hold high positions. Um, Have you ever heard of Hideki Tojo? Yes. Yeah, he was uh, the warmongering prime minister during World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was part of the Kwantung army at one point, as well as uh, Seishiro Itagaki, who was the minister of war. Wow. At one one point, yeah. Um, So, like, this this army group is a big thing. Mm. Um, And they participated in every war crime that took place in mainland China 
from the Imperial Japanese Army. So like mm. Nanking, Unit 731, the Marco Polo Bridge incident, um, where a bunch of stuff happened with that too. Yeah, all of this is the Kwantung Army. So very extremist. Very much so. And we know how extremist nationalism goes in the 1930s. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, never anywhere good. Mm-mm. At least not for, you know, history's sake. For, for, for not being an evil POS, it doesn't go good. If you're trying to be an evil POS, it goes great. For a while. Until suddenly it doesn't. Yeah, and then you end up shooting yourself in the head before the Russians invade. <laughs> okay, I wasn't <laughs> expecting a Hitler suicide joke this late at night, but <laughs> there we go. Yeah. I, I think that's the one person that's okay to make suicide jokes about. That and Epstein, yeah. I feel like I'm going to want to cut this, but, you know, whatever. I'm, I mean, you know, they're everywhere, and they're all funny. True. Um, but at any Besides, rate... Besides, I don't think Hitler actually killed himself. He moved to Argentina, you know. Conspiracy. Yeah, we can also get into that at a later date. That would <laughs> That's a fun... Um, I don't mind getting into speculative history. No. Especially when uh, they're fun conspiracy theories. Yeah, the only problem is it takes so much research. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, so Quantum Army, huge... Uh, can we? Should we call them a cell? I feel like that's... Uh, cell, militia... C- it's I mean it's a full recognized army group, so yeah. Um faction, I guess would be the proper term. I've used that before, but you know Faction, Legion. Yeah. Anyway, it's a problematic nationalist military industrial complex. There we go. Um very problematic also. If all of those buzzwords didn't lead you to think they were problematic, I don't know what to tell you yeah so um the i i i don't want to say today's main character but today's <laughs> main character is um one ishi shiro now that so, name sounds familiar yeah so ishi shiro would he would go on to be the leader of 731. So everything that we're going to get into in the fault. next episode. Oh yeah. All, all him, all him. So this man was a walking human rights violation. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to put it any way better than that. But before he became a walking human rights violation, he was a he was a child, a baby. 
born in 1892 in a small village of uh, Shibayama in Chiba Prefecture, which is to the east of Tokyo. If you remember from earlier on in the episode, I went there today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, not to Shibayama, but Chiba Prefecture. Anyway, so he was from a very, very rich family. Uh, his family were they were they was he was descended from landowners in this area, essentially daimyo. Oh, and even though the daimyo, the system that had the shogun and the daimyo, even though that was done away with got like 30 years before he was born um his family still held on to a lot of wealth and power okay so for comparison to an american audience we could compare him to old school confederate nobility yeah i'd say that would be a little accurate um I guess another way of going about saying this was that like all of the um, families of previous daimyo Mm. were somewhat on par with like the Kennedys. Okay. Where, where, you know, they still have land, they still have wealth and therefore they still have a lot of influence. Right. So essentially all this is to say that he was, really wanting for nothing growing up. He had wealth. His family had power and influence. He could get to where he wanted to go. And unfortunately that place was being an evil POS. Walking human rights violation. Yup. So with all of this, his family and Ishii himself kind of still held on to the belief that um, the, the lives of the lower classes weren't really as valuable as the value or as the lives of the upper classes. Mm-hmm. And that'll later on be coupled with um, some nationalism. And uh, I guess you could say social Darwinism that western influence kind of brought into japan so yet again it's the fault of the west not entirely i would say but (laughs) um they the west kind of introduced some toxic thoughts to japan yeah so uh, this is to call to call forward how many times am I going to say that um, just so we can have a bit of an understanding as to why he would have the way of thinking that he did for the actions he was going to commit the peasantry are our playthings they're not really human there and if because we have fought and conquered these people they are also our playthings because we're better than them 
Right. So, um, Ishii, I, I couldn't really find much about like his childhood other than he was apparently a very good student. He was, he was very intelligent. He was described as being a teacher's favorite Mm. and having a photographic memory. Um, his classmates apparently described him as brash, abrasive, and arrogant, Sounds which makes right. makes sense with that upper class upbringing. Mm-hmm. We all know some rich person who thinks they're better because they're rich. So after finishing high school, Ishii would go on to study medicine at Kyoto Imperial University, which was one of the most prestigious universities you could go to at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he graduated from that. In 1921, he became a surgeon for the Imperial Japanese Army and was given the rank of lieutenant he was sent to army medical school in Tokyo and then a postgraduate school in Kyoto. And all of this is because he was a very smart, very skilled surgeon. So uh, one of the things that you end up seeing a lot when you go into world war two and Mm -hmm the doctors that are involved there. They are brilliant minds. Unfortunately, terrible people, but brilliant minds. Mm-hmm. You you can draw a lot of parallels between Ishii and Yosef Mengele. Like, scary parallels. I can see that. Because... One of the things that I think gets muddled a bit about Mengele, too, is the fact that he also was a doctor. Right. Like, it's it's like these it's weird to think about, like, these doctors cause this much harm. Mm hmm. But that's how things worked. Um, I don't know what to blame it on it's just kind of the the, it's a thing of the times creative thinking and horrible people leads to very interesting ways of traumatizing others right and then you have war that serves as the great justifier yeah and the breeding ground for the ideas that these men had Mm-hmm. So Ishii's main concern in his studies wasn't necessarily healing people as a doctor. Obviously, spoiler alert. <laughs> um he his main in- it no, he didn't. He didn't. Um his 
primary concern was biology and experimentation. Specifically, he was interested in bacteria. And he was characterized a lot with, like, just... He would do weird things. Like, he would have culture samples that he would call his pets. Um, He would stay late, late in the lab working on experiments. Mm. And then after finishing experiments, uh, and note, this is when he was in the army. After finishing his experiments, he would just go out and go drinking with the guys. Uh, He was known a lot for his drinking, embezzling, and womanizing all of which were tolerated because he was an amazing surgeon and i probably also partially because of his nationalism because he was known Mm. as being a, a staunch nationalist and that actually gets us into our our next point So, so after his, or after he finished the postgraduate school in Kyoto, he went on to do a tour of 30 Western countries. Um, Sorry, I, I'm, I'm looking at my notes. I wrote it down really weirdly. So th- this tour would be over the course of two years. But mm. he spent a significant amount of his time in Germany. Big which surprise. Is, yeah, not, not good. <laughs> but uh, he spent a significant amount of time in Germany, uh, particularly because he was interested in the chemical weapons that Germany used during World War I. Because during World War One, uh, you had a lot of countries using chlorine gas and other things, mm-hmm. but that resulted in both sides eventually learning to use gas masks. And so, I guess a bit from this, this probably would have affected Ishii's mentality towards chemical weapons and viewing them as um, less dangerous, less significant than, for example, biological weapons. Mm-hmm. But the basis for using biological weapons is founded upon the usage of chemical weapons. So... And both biological and chemical weapons were of particular interest to a lot of countries at the time, but particularly it was an interest of the Japanese army. So his travels and the research that he got during his travels were really successful. And they helped him win the patronage of Sado Araki, who is the Japanese minister of the army. 
which is a big ally to gain. Oh, yeah. And a very interesting point. He also received the backing of Araki's ideological rival, Major General Tetsuzan Nagata. And Nagata was eventually considered um, Ishii's most active supporter. Hmm. So, yeah, he's he's making a lot of moves. Mm-hmm. And, Playing both sides. Yeah, and coupled with being a devout nationalist, that gains you a lot more um, clout with the higher-ups. Mm-hmm. So... He also apparently had a very enthusiastic personality and had a, quote, daring and carefree attitude. Well, yeah, uh, it's better than everybody else. Yeah. Um, it's There's a really weird note that I found in my source that <laughs> described a former member of Unit 731 talking about when he first met Ishii in Tokyo. Uh, he, it, quote, Ishii was slovenly dressed. His uniform was covered with food stains and ashes from numerous cigarettes. His officer's sword was poorly fastened and dragged on the floor. End quote. But when he was in Manchuria... Ishii would essentially be an entirely different person. Quote, mm. he was dressed immaculately. His uniform was spotless and his sword was tied correctly. End quote. So, like, I'm not sure what that note is trying to point out if it's trying to show that, like, this man was kind of two-faced or if it was he didn't really seem to care while he was away from his command mm -hmm. or maybe it's to appear plain and like non-important while he is not at his unit see that's what my first thought was yeah i'm i'm not really sure which it is because yeah that is where my first thought went but i'm also just thinking what if militaristically that's... speaking, it sounds like he's playing mind games. A little bit, yeah. He's taking his authority seriously when he wants to. Yes. And so that... I suppose that goes into him being potentially devious. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense given who we're talking about. Master manipulator. Yes. So, because of all these moves that he was making, he was eventually able to um, talk about wanting to do more research into biological weapons, specifically. And so with the backing of Araki and Nagata, he was able to get the uh, 
go ahead to have a facility that would allow him his research to be done. So, yeah, we're inching closer to 731 becoming a full thing. Mm -hmm. So, there was a prison camp in Manchukuo. Because, so this is all happening after 1931 now. So, he has a 10-year rise of power. And he has a lot of power that he rose to in that. So, it was the Zhongma Fortress that was the prison camp. And in 1935, there is a breach. And it's not known if that was sabotage or not. But that uh, kind of rendered the facility unusable in terms of it's not as secure as it should be. Hmm. And with that, they the Kwantung army was given the go-ahead to construct a new facility to replace Zhongma. So this and, very well could have been like one of those internal, uh, oh no, it's broken, give us a new one. Kind of like the Mukden incident that I talked about a little earlier. Mm-hmm. It's not known. The Mukden incident is definitely known as being a false flag operation. This, we don't know. But probably. So the new facility was just supposed to be a prison camp. It was constructed in 1935. And it was initially under control of the Kempeitai, which is... a uh, Imperial Japanese military police. Mm-hmm. But the Kwantung army in 1936, and specifically Ishii, because you know you have this terrible person attached to this terrible army unit, uh, they gained control of the new fortress, and they dubbed it Unit 731. Um, officially... It was known as the Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Unit. Huh. Which is going to be great knowing that moving forward. So, yeah. Ishii. This prison camp was being constructed. It was finished, and Ishii took control of it, expanded it, and started using it for his own purposes. And that is where we will pick back up in part two. I know this is a really short episode comparative to what we've been at for the past, what, six months? Yeah. But... 
you can see why I didn't want to include this with other material. Like this is a lot of background information and I don't want this to get mixed up. Like if I were to try and cover this with the other stuff, we'd probably be at like over two hours. Oh yeah, easily. Because I, you know, I have the actual operations of the unit to cover. I have the aftermath to cover. Where did they go to cover? Mm-hmm. But it's a logical stopping point. Yeah. So, um, Logan, any thoughts thus far? This dude's crazy and has uh, nobody above him to stop him. Yeah, it's it, it's basically. I know we usually don't swear, but uh, I feel like this is a little called for. Mm-hmm. Nationalism for his part is basically ass kissing that actually gets you a promotion. Yeah. Because normally that doesn't really get you anywhere other than getting you brownie points. But in his case, it literally got him a laboratory. And nobody supervising. Yup. Yeah, it's, um, sorry, that, it's a laugh because it's awkward. Yeah. Not because I think this is, this is funny. This is absolutely horrible. It's amazing what people will put up with to like win wars and yeah win their arguments yeah i'm god it's honestly it takes a lot of energy and restraint from me to stop here yeah because i know what they do i've researched this a lot i've watched movies that were made as like hey, this happened in history and no one talks about it anymore. Like, I've watched stuff like that, and it's just, like, it's really hard not to talk about it right now. There's actual, like, straight-up footage of some of his experiments, isn't there? Uh, That I don't know of. It wouldn't surprise me. I know there's pictures. Yeah. But um, that's also going a bit forward and yes things. it is and uh, that'll definitely be uh part of what's addressed in the next episode yeah <sighs> this is honestly this topic is despite the fact that i know a lot this topic is really difficult to research because like i can't tell you how difficult it was getting notes about the Kwantung army in proper order because every, every every time every hyperlink I click on just leads to another clickable hyperlink that I should probably <laughs> include, but I can't include everything. Yeah. Otherwise we just go through all of history in five minutes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's that's the story of the Kwantung army and Ishiro up until they decide to start doing war crimes. And Boyd, well, okay, no, the Quantung Army already did war crimes at this point. Let's, let's. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
<laughs> it's also just frustrating. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff that happened in the thirties is. Yeah. Worldwide. I mean, everything that led into world war two is just super frustrating. And would have been so avoidable. Yep. Really could have been all of it. All of it really could have been. Yeah. Um, so we'll be back next week with how to avoid World War Three. Oh my god. <laughs> no. Although, speaking of World War III, um, so, okay, the, the, this isn't too out of the realm of normalcy. We usually just kind of shoot the breeze for 15 to 45 minutes at the end of every episode. True. Um, I do want to say, given, you know, the state that the world's in, um, I don't really have any reservations in saying that I fully support the people of Ukraine. Go Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia's invasion is unjust. As most invasions are. Yep, and it's also tanking the Russian economy, which is, you know, a fun thing to look at. Yeah, it's kind of hurting ours, too. It's hurting the global economy. Gas is expensive in Japan, too. Yeah. Um, As of this recording... $1 is equal to 134 Russian rubles. Wow. Which is... So what was it three weeks ago? um, Well, on February... Exactly one month ago, it was $1.275 Russian rubles. So it's almost doubled. Yeah. Mm. Um, Although I do also have to say... Uh, if we happen to have any Russian listeners in the future, because we don't have any now, I checked. Um, I understand that you are being lied to and you are not at fault for what your government chooses to do. Very much so. I I hold no animosity towards the Russian people. And that's... I do hold- Definitely an issue that can be brought up with the international response is it's doing a lot more to damage the Russian people than it is Putin. Yes. Although I think part of the goal might be for the Russian people to um, see everything that's happening and realize that Putin is not the person they thought he was. But that's speculation, and we are getting a bit too into the current events. This is not a current events podcast. Yes, and a lot of current events is based on speculation. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say that we here at Cognitive History support the Ukrainian cause. So... I I do want to point out... um, in relation to this support of the Ukrainian cause. It's very interesting watching Catholic news outlets right now. Oh, yeah? Because, of course, 
a good portion of the Ukrainian population is either Roman Catholic or Ukrainian Orthodoxy. Yes. And um, all the stories of people seeing angels in the clouds and images of St. Michael and Mary bleeding or what have you. Hmm. It's really interesting to look into. I mean, I'm not saying that it's real. As with a lot of things in Catholicism, you have some leniency into what apparitions you believe. Right. It's not confirmed by the church. The Pope ain't come out and said, yeah, this happened. But just hearing the stories and stuff, you know, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, In a different vein, since we're talking... um. omens yeah that's a good way of putting it mm-hmm. um the sesho seki broke last week oh i heard about that so so for our listeners who don't know what the sesho seki is um it's basically it, the seventh seal of revelation yeah sort of <laughs> in a way so uh, sesho seki it's it's the killing stone is what mm-hmm. it translates to and um depending on which version of the story you read basically a um, nine-tailed fox uh, who is Naruto not one of the... Free. No, no, stop. <laughs> uh, she wasn't one of the cool nine-tailed foxes. She was an antagonistic one. Um, she was sealed within the stone, and if it ever broke, she was going to come out of it. Um, and So yeah, the stone broke. So, you know... Check that off on your 2022 bingo card. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is like seeing the pictures of the broken stone is wild because I wanted to see what it. What caused it? Well, so it was um, they had noticed cracks forming in it for a while. And basically what they think happened is uh, water. The dimensional gateway weakened. No. <laughs> Scientifically speaking, they think water got into the cracks and froze, and then after that, it split the stone in half. It's general basically... asphalt theory. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Okay. I but... mean, if you've ever wondered why there's so many potholes in certain roads and not others, that's generally why. Yeah. But. Yeah, I just figured that would be a, an interesting thing to note since we were talking a little bit about omens. Um, at any rate, I need to be going so that I can get to bed because I have work tomorrow. It is almost 11.30 p.m. my time. Yeah, yeah. Well, have a good Monday and, you know, I'll be heading to Mass in a few minutes. Don't worry, I'll be getting this episode out on time. On time for who? Um, on time for us and the audience. Um, <laughs> I I plan on editing and getting it out tomorrow. So okay. it'll be out shortly. You can listen to it. You'll be listening to it when you hear me talk about how you can listen to it soon. <laughs> That that is a segue if ever I've heard one. 
That is meta, is what that is. <laughs> so, at any rate. Uh, like the nine-tailed it, fox trapped in the stone, that time is over. <laughs> and the podcast is ending. Yes. Um, so, please, <laughs> please follow us on Facebook at CognitiveHistory.pod. I hate it. Um send us an email cognitive history podcast at gmail.com please send me an email i made this email account and i haven't gotten a single thing i check it and i i the only emails i have are from google really not even any like ads or we have no. secret video recordings of you no i it's all just from the google community team the google team google and google Oh, look at that top one. Hi, this is Google. Sorry you're so lonely. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, no, s- send us, you know, if you want a shout out, I can give shout outs. Um, corrections are always appreciated. Always. Uh, suggestions for what to cover in the future. Or if you just want to say hi, I'm fine with chit chatting. Yeah complain about my treatment of you know many different kinds of people specifically speaking the dutch the dutch yeah um old golem in his former greek colony oh what, what's the other thing we usually plug at the end of the oh uh share us around with your friends if you appreciate our content we don't get shared we forgot what that word is <laughs> But yeah, at any rate, do all of that. Um, rate us, Pray for the please. people in Ukraine if you pray. Yes, absolutely. Uh, donate if you want to go that route. Make sure it's a legitimate source that's actually going to get to the people that need it most. Yes, absolutely. Be sure you are donating to a verified charity. And regardless of your religious affiliations, I'd recommend checking out the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, they probably have good sources to get help to people. Yes. So, at any rate, that is where we are going to cut it for today. We will see you in the next one. Bye!